Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Coinciding with the Kennedy Center's production of the Broadway musical Hamilton, guest lecturer Heidi Applegate surveys works of art featuring Alexander Hamilton in this presentation delivered August 5, 2018 at the National Gallery of Art. The American painter John Trumbull and the Italian sculptor Giuseppe Ceracci are Hamilton's best-known portraitists, thanks to the countless reproductions of their works made after Hamilton's death. Several other artists also created portraits of Hamilton from life, many of which were replicated during the 19th century. Applegate also discusses portraits of Hamilton's family members and other founding fathers, who were important to Hamilton's political career, as well as the major posthumous paintings and monuments that helped to secure Hamilton's legacy. Good afternoon, I'm Heidi Applegate, and for the past several months, I've been helping to give talks and lectures for the education division here at the gallery. Several weeks ago, to coincide with the opening of the Broadway musical Hamilton at the Kennedy Center, I designed a gallery talk focusing on paintings on view in the gallery's collection, including this one, that relate to Hamilton's life. Today's lecture will include some of the material from the gallery talk, but also prints and sculptures of Hamilton from other collections, as well as paintings of the key figures in Hamilton's life, his wife Eliza and Aaron Burr, for instance, who are not represented by objects in the National Gallery. Ron Chernow, in his biography of Hamilton, mentions and also reproduces many of the images that I will show you today, but here you will see them wall size and in color. Chernow describes Hamilton as having lived, quote, the most dramatic and improbable life among the founding fathers, end quote. Perhaps even more improbable than Hamilton's life is Lin-Manuel Miranda's adaptation of Chernow's biography into one of the most successful Broadway musicals of all time. As you may have heard, Hamilton the Musical was recently named a recipient of the Kennedy Center Honors, and it is the first work of art, instead of an individual, to receive that award. Every other founding father's story gets told, but none has been told quite like this. Alexander Hamilton has been immortalized by the musical and by Miranda's portrayal of him, and these images will likely be the ones immediately called to mind by younger generations when they hear the name Alexander Hamilton. What I want to do today is to look at how Hamilton was portrayed by artists in his own time and for the first 100 years or so after his death. My talk is divided into four parts, which I will describe as I go. The first part considers the two artists who in particular were responsible for perpetuating Hamilton's image in the visual arts. On the right is John Trumbull's portrait of Hamilton from 1792. Miranda describes Hamilton as, quote, the best looking founding father. And Trumbull has captured that here. More than any other image that I will show you today, in this portrait, Hamilton is downright pretty with his rosy cheeks and red lips. Hamilton's reliability with the ladies was so notorious that Martha Washington named her feral tomcat after him. That's true. And we can see why here. On the left is a self-portrait of Trumbull painted in 1777 from the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. John Trumbull was born into a prominent family in Connecticut. He graduated from Harvard. He fought with a Continental Regiment during the Revolution, served briefly as Washington's aide-de-camp, and then decided to become an artist, and he went to London to study with Benjamin West. Trumbull also visited Thomas Jefferson in Paris. He met the French academic painter Jacques-Louis David and the sculptor Jean-Antoine Houdon, who later modeled Washington from life at Mount Vernon. Trumbull returned to America in 1789 with the goal of painting the events of the Revolutionary War, and he spent the next few years traveling up and down the East Coast doing portraits for his history paintings. In 1791, a group of New York City merchants commissioned Trumbull to paint a full-length portrait of Hamilton for the New York Chamber of Commerce, and that portrait is on the left. Hamilton agreed to sit for Trumbull, but asked that the portrait, quote, appear unconnected with any incident of my political life. The simple representation of their fellow citizen and friend will best accord with my feelings, end quote. 
the original painting, now jointly owned by the Metropolitan Museum in New York City and the Crystal Bridges Museum in Bentonville, Arkansas, shows Hamilton standing next to a desk with his hand resting on one, possibly two, pieces of paper. This very short stack of documents somewhat downplays Hamilton's written output. Chernow tallies 22,000 pages of Hamilton's published personal, legal, and business papers. He calls Hamilton, quote, the human word machine, end quote, and credits him with producing, quote, the maximum number of words that a human being can scratch out in 49 years, end quote. Miranda refers to the tonnage of Hamilton's writing, and in the musical, the chorus asks Hamilton, how do you write every second you're alive? The main example of Hamilton's skill with the quill that Miranda includes is a breakdown of the Federalist Papers, the 85 essays defending the Constitution and written in the span of six months. John Jay wrote five, James Madison wrote 29, and Hamilton wrote the other 51. The gallery's bustling version on the right was once thought to be the original painting from life that Trumbull used as the source for the Met version, but more recent technical analysis shows that the National Gallery's picture has none of the changes often found in portraits done from life, and the outstretched arm replicates the standing pose, and that doesn't make sense for a bust-length composition. Trumbull concentrates the light onto Hamilton's forehead to emphasize his intellectual powers or to what Lin-Manuel Hamilton refers as, quote, my top-notch brain. Oliver Wolcott, who succeeded Hamilton as the second Secretary of the Treasury, was the first owner of the gallery's portrait, and then it was later purchased by John Jay's son. Because historians initially thought that it had been a commission for John Jay, it is known as the Jay type. Different versions of the same sitter painted by the same artist are known as types, and the types are typically named for the painting's original owner. We'll see this again when we get to George Washington. Trumbull went on to paint four other replicas of the J type, and all but the one that is lost are shown here. On the upper left, that portrait is in the collection of the Yale Art Gallery. In the middle, the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. And on the right is a version in the Mets collection. And it's interesting, Trumbull changed the color of Hamilton's coat. In the same year that Trumbull was commissioned to paint his first portrait of Hamilton, the other artist responsible for immortalizing Hamilton based on a life sitting arrived in America. On the left is Trumbull's miniature portrait of the Italian sculptor Giuseppe Seracci, who came to America in 1791, hoping for commissions for public sculpture from the new United States government. That didn't pan out, but he spent about 18 months in America doing clay busts for a series of great men of America. He went back to Italy in 1792, then returned to the US in 1794, bringing along the marble busts that he had carved of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Alexander Hamilton. Sirachi portrayed Hamilton as a Roman soldier, nude apart from the Baltius, a strap used to support a sword or a shield that we see across his chest. Sirachi offered the bust to Hamilton as a gift. Hamilton paid the shipping, but later Sirachi demanded payment when these other commissions weren't working out, and Hamilton was somewhat annoyed by this, but he did pay Sirachi $620 for the sculpture, and that was an enormous sum of money back then, but it turned out to be money well spent. After Hamilton's death, several sculptors made copies of Sirachi's bust. Sirachi wasn't around to make copies himself. When he left America for the second time, he moved to France, where he became implicated in a plot to assassinate Napoleon, and he was guillotined in Paris on January 30th, 1802. So he has an even more violent death than Hamilton. The large marble bust on the left is really the same size as the others, but I've enlarged it because it's the one you can easily go see in DC. It's currently on view along with the original dueling pistols that are on loan from the J.P. Morgan Chase Corporation in New York as part of an exhibition devoted to Hamilton at the National Postal Museum. 
The other three busts at the top right are from the Boston Athenaeum, the Met, and the New York Historical Society. Below are two later 19th century prints of the bust engraved by William Leaney around 1815 on the left and by Asher Brown Durand in 1834 on the lower right. Perhaps because Sirachi's bust was now the only three-dimensional model available, perhaps because people felt it was a more accurate portrayal of Hamilton, but also perhaps because it was so different from Trumbull's earlier portrait, the bust would allow Trumbull to more easily create a new memorializing conception of Hamilton as an older statesman. Trumbull used Sirachi's bust as the model for his second posthumous portrait of Hamilton. Trumbull arrived back in New York City after another six years in Europe on June 27, 1804. Two weeks later, Hamilton was dead and Trumbull was about to realize a windfall. On the left is Trumbull's self-portrait from 1802, and it shows how far he has come and how much the study with Benjamin West at the Royal Academy in London had transformed his style. In the middle is another full-length portrait commissioned by the New York City Council after Hamilton's death, and it is still hanging in City Hall. It was the first of what would become known as the Sirachi type because Trumbull used Sirachi's bust as his model. And like his earlier portrait for the New York Chamber of Commerce, Trumbull began taking orders for bust length replicas. The other portrait of Hamilton on the right is one of those replicas and it's from the National Gallery's collection. It was, however, one of the original paintings that Andrew Mellon gave to the National Gallery in 1941 along with the rest of his collection. Andrew Mellon was the Secretary of the Treasury under three consecutive administrations in the 1920s and early 30s, so it's perhaps not surprising that he would own a portrait of the first Secretary of the Treasury. There are two fun stories associated with Mellon's painting. It was most likely owned by David Hossack, the doctor who attended to Hamilton after Burr shot him. And at some later point, Mellon's portrait was misattributed to John Vanderlyn, another early 19th century painter, but that mistake was quickly cleared up when one scholar realized the unlikelihood that Vanderlyn, who was a very good friend of Aaron Burr, would ever have agreed to paint Hamilton. Theodore Sizer, the Yale art historian who cataloged Trumbull's complete works, described Hamilton's death as, quote, a financial godsend for Trumbull. In addition to the Mellon painting, Trumbull made seven additional bust-length replicas of the City Hall portrait. And the one that I've enlarged on the right is, again, the one that you can easily go see in DC. It's on view in the American Origins installation on the first floor of the National Portrait Gallery downtown. On the right are the versions owned by the White House on the upper left, the New York Historical Society on the upper right, and the MFA in Boston below. Trumbull charged $100 for his bust-length replicas, the same amount that Gilbert Stewart charged for his replicas of George Washington. Stewart even referred to his replicas of the two middle portraits as his $100 bill, and he painted more than 100 of them. This is Stewart's self-portrait from 1778 on the left, and the three types of his many portraits of Washington, each type known by the name of its first owner. The National Gallery owns the original Vaughn type to the right of Stewart, painted from life in 1795, and it is on view on the ground floor of the West Building. The middle image of Washington is jointly owned by the National Portrait Gallery and the MFA in Boston. It was based on a second life sitting in 1796, and it is known as the Athenaeum type. And finally, the original full-length Lansdowne type is on view at the National Portrait Gallery. Chernow has said that it would be hard to imagine Hamilton's career without Washington, and the same is true for Gilbert Stuart. Gilbert Stewart was born in Rhode Island. He worked as an assistant in Benjamin West's studio and lived in London for 18 years, where he began a successful portrait career. And then he returned to the United States in 1793 with the specific intent to paint Washington's portrait. He knew there was going to be a demand for images of the new nation's first president, and he was right. Stewart made a fortune painting replicas of Washington's portraits, but he lived extravagantly. He was always on the verge of being thrown into prison for his debts. 
This portrait of Washington by Stuart is important because it was commissioned as a gift for Hamilton. It hung in two of the Hamilton's residences in New York City and then in Eliza's home in Washington. It was passed down through their descendants who gave it to the New York Public Library in 1889 and then the New York Public Library sold it at auction in 2005 to the Crystal Bridges Museum where it now is. The portrait is based on the Lansdowne type, but it's a half length instead of a full length. It is also very unusual in that it shows a view of a naval battle behind Washington. The view was possibly intended as a reference to the resolution of trade and shipping issues negotiated in Jay's treaty, which Hamilton convinced Washington to ratify. And we're gonna hear more about Jay's treaty in a minute. The last point that I want to make about Washington is the one made by art historian Paul Stady in his excellent book about the artists who painted the revolution. Stady writes, quote, Stewart's portrait of Washington as an example of durability and reach has been reproduced more times than any other image in history. How can that possibly be so? In 1929, the Federal Reserve redesigned the $10 bill and used Trumbull's portrait after Sirachi's bust as the source for Hamilton's portrait. The current $10 bill redesigned in 2006 is at the bottom. A quick Google search provided the figure from an April 2018 report that there are now 1.9 billion $10 bills in circulation. There are 11.1 billion $1 bills in circulation and almost as many $100 bills. So Franklin's getting almost as much pay as Washington. Trumbull's portrait has perpetuated Hamilton's image well. Before Hamilton was on the 10, Sirachi's portrait was also widely reproduced on stamps beginning in 1870, um, and these stamps are part of the focus of the Postal Museum exhibition. On the top is the first stamp to depict a Secretary of the Treasury, and nearly three million of these two versions were printed by the National Banknote Company on the left and by the Continental Banknote Company on the right. The $5 stamp using Trumbull's portrait was issued in 1956, and it is very rare. Um, I don't have the issue numbers for that one. The three cent stamp, again based on Trumbull's portrait, includes Federal Hall in New York in the design, and it was issued in 1957 on the 200th anniversary of Hamilton's birth, and 120 million of those were printed. This may seem a little bit of a jump, but stick with me. Here's, here's Eliza Hamilton in a portrait painted by Ralph Earle in 1787, and it's part of the collection of the Museum of the City of New York. Alexander and Eliza were married in 1780. Eliza sat for her portrait in a jail in Manhattan where Ralph Earle was imprisoned for debt. According to a story passed down through the family, Eliza encouraged other friends to help the artist by going to the jail to have their portraits painted as well, and Earl soon had enough money to pay for his release. Eliza is fashionably dressed in a white gown with an embroidered collar and pink sash. Her hair is piled high and powdered. These are two late portraits of Eliza with Sirachi's bust of Hamilton, which she treasured to the end of her life. On the left is a miniature by Henry Inman, dated 1825, uh, from the New York Historical Society, and on the right, a later mid-19th century portrait by Daniel Huntington that was recently acquired by the National Museum of American History, and it's currently on view just down the mall. In 1896, a frequent visitor to Eliza's house on H Street near the White House wrote this account of her, quote, I remember nothing more distinctly than a marble bust of Hamilton standing on its pedestal in a draped corner. That bust I can never forget, for the old lady always paused before it in her tour of the rooms and leaning on her cane, gazed and gazed as if she could never be satisfied, end quote. And I have to wonder if that's where Lin-Manuel Miranda got the idea of the, you know, Angelica and himself could never be satisfied. Now we come to part two of the lecture, uh, devoted to other less well-known portraits of Hamilton, also created during his lifetime. 
Charles Wilson Peale, whose self-portrait from 1777 is on the left, made the first documented portrait of Hamilton in America, and that's the miniature in the middle dated uh, also from 1777. Peale painted the portrait on the right sometime between 1790 and 1795 for his museum in Philadelphia. The watercolor below is a view of the main room of the Peale Museum. The museum included natural specimens as well as art, and you can see the double row of portraits along the top wall here. Uh, Hamilton's was one of the many portraits that Peale painted of the Revolutionary War heroes to display in his museum. Peel painted the first extant painting of Hamilton, but there was an earlier miniature portrait of him now known only through this photograph in the Library of Congress's collection. The inscription reads, A. Hamilton, drawn from life, January 11, 1773. Hamilton's birth year is contested, but if we go with 1757, which is what the Postal Service went with for these anniversary issues, uh, the date of the miniature was Hamilton's 16th birthday. The other extraordinary early document from the Library of Congress's collection, uh, and that is on view in the Hamilton exhibition there, is the letter written by 12-year-old Hamilton in which he writes, I wish there was a war. The black ink silhouette on the right from about 1800 is by William Bache, an itinerant profile artist who was born in England in 1771 and moved to Pennsylvania where he died in 1845. This is James Sharple's pastel portrait of Hamilton from 1796. Sharples was born in England and moved to America in 1796, and he traveled to major cities painting portraits. He charged $10 for a profile view, which was his preferred format, and then he made a replica for himself, eventually amassing about 200 portraits of notable people which he displayed in his house and then charged $2.50 for additional replicas. There is a great story associated with this image, perhaps not this particular one, because Sharples produced several replicas of Hamilton. The French diplomat, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand, took a Sharples portrait of Hamilton back to France with him, and he hung it in his office. After Hamilton's death, Eliza wrote to Talleyrand asking if he would please return it to her. Talleyrand had a copy made in oil and sent it to Eliza in, quote, fear the original picture should not reach you with my present letter, end quote. A subsequent story relating to Talleyrand suggests that he never sent the original back. Years after Hamilton's death, Burr called on Talleyrand and sent in his card. Talleyrand told his secretary to give Burr this message, quote, I shall be glad to see Colonel Burr, but please tell him that a portrait of Alexander Hamilton always hangs in my study where all may see it, end quote. Burr took the hint and left. <laughs> These next three images are all prints of lost paintings painted during Hamilton's lifetime and engraved in the last years of his life or around the time of his death, and they're all from the National Portrait Gallery. The image on the left is an etching and stipple and line engraving by William Rawlinson after a miniature painted by Walter Robertson in 1796. Robertson was an Irish painter who came to America in 1793 on the same ship that brought Gilbert Stuart back. In the middle is William Rawlinson's stipple engraving after an original painting by Archibald Robertson, no relation to Walter Robertson. Archibald was Scottish. He studied with Joshua Reynolds and Benjamin West in London before he came to America in 1794. He portrayed Hamilton surrounded by symbols of his public service, including the seal of the Treasury Department and the eagle insignia of the Society of the Cincinnati and the various documents are helpfully labeled. This is a report on funding public debt, and here we have liberty of the press and carriage tax. Rawlinson asked Archibald to engrave this portrait after Hamilton died, and through the engravings, it became a widely known image of Hamilton in the early 19th century. The Society of the Cincinnati also owns one of these prints, and theirs is currently on view. On the right is a mezzotint from about 1800-1804 by George Graham of a lost full-length portrait in which Hamilton is again wearing the badge of the Society of the Cincinnati. 
The Society of the Cincinnati, for those who don't know, was an organization of veteran officers founded in 1783, and Hamilton succeeded Washington as the society's second president. The pencil drawing on the left by Gideon Fairman is from the New York Historical Society. Fairman knew Hamilton and made this drawing from memory when he heard of Hamilton's death. In the middle is Ezra Ames' portrait of Hamilton, owned by Union College. Ames was a portrait painter in Albany during the late 18th and early 19th century, and he painted this portrait in 1810, but it is very similar to another version that he painted in 1802, just after Hamilton's oldest son, Philip, was killed in a duel with one of those pistols that are now on view at the Postal Museum. Philip's portrait is on the right from an illustration that appeared in a 1911 biography of Hamilton, and Chernow reproduces both of these portraits in his biography. Chernow has also discussed this portrait of Hamilton as expressing Hamilton's deep sorrow over Philip's death. And like the Mellon portrait of Trumbull in the gallery's collection, Ames's portrait was also misattributed to John Vanderlyn for a number of years. These are five of the eight existing replicas of the same portrait, all by William Weaver. The one in the middle is the same size as the others, but again, I'm featuring it prominently because it's the one on view in DC in the excellent exhibition at the Society of the Cincinnati that's on view through September 16. The other four are from on the top left, the Mead Art Gallery at Amherst. Lower left is the State Department. Uh, the top right is from the Indianapolis Museum of Art, and the one on the lower right is from the New York Historical Society. William Weaver was born in England. He was in New York by 1794, and he was another artist who painted portraits up and down the East Coast. The William Weaver expert, Paul Schweitzer, makes the compelling argument that Weaver may have used a tracing device as part of his process for making his replicas, and then he would apply the finishing details by hand. Weaver's portraits all date to the period of high demand in the years immediately following Hamilton's death. Schweitzer also convincingly demonstrates that Weaver used a print of James Sharple's pastel portrait of Hamilton as his model. So here's the Sharple's pastel, the print after it, and then Weaver's portrait from Indianapolis that really lines up almost perfectly with the print. And I'm gonna go out on a limb here to suggest that Schweitzer's argument can be extended to the engraved portrait of Hamilton on the right that was produced somewhere around 1861 to 1881 for a series of portraits of treasury secretaries. And this Hamilton is also remarkably similar to the Anderson print. There is a wall size blow up of this image in the exhibition at the Postal Museum. So this concludes the survey of portraits of Hamilton painted from life or shortly after he died. In part three, we'll look at some of the other people who were important to Hamilton's story. Take Philip Schuyler, the man is loaded. He's on the left. This is a miniature painted by Trumbull in 1792, the same year Trumbull first painted Hamilton's portrait. In the middle is a large-scale portrait of Angelica with a child and servant, painted by Trumbull in 1785 when he was in London. Angelica married John Church, a British merchant, and they lived in London until 1799. They were an important source of support for Trumbull and helped fund his study with West and also his trip to France. Angelica looks less than thrilled here by the demands of motherhood as she hands the child off to the nanny behind her. Angelica eventually had eight children, but John Church was fabulously rich and they could afford childcare. Trumbull demonstrates his attempt to master the British portrait tradition. The composition of the three figures is a bit awkward, but this painting would more or less be at home over in the West Building alongside portraits of women and children by Joshua Reynolds or John Hopner. On the right is an engraving after a later miniature portrait of Angelica by Richard Cosway, painted in 1790, and she looks much younger and happier without the child and the big powdered wig. 
There are several portraits of men who were important throughout Hamilton's career and that are currently on view in the West Building. Hanging next to Hamilton in Gallery 62 is this portrait by Gilbert Stewart of John Jay. And it's nice that they're next to each other because of their work together on the Federalist Papers, also because the portrait of Hamilton was later owned by Jay's son, and because of the link between Trumbull and Jay. Gilbert Stewart started the portrait of Jay just before Jay left for London in May 1794 to negotiate the settlement that became known as Jay's Treaty. The treaty resolved trade issues held over from the revolution, and it was extremely unpopular, but it essentially averted another war with England. Trumbull went with Jay to London to serve as Jay's secretary during the negotiations. I really wish Trumbull had made it into the musical. And so this is the trip that he returns from just in time for the duel between Hamilton and Burr. Stewart finally delivered the portrait to Jay's wife in November, and she described it in a letter to her husband as, quote, your very self and inimitable. Jay is wearing academic robes that he received when he was awarded an honorary degree from Harvard, and it's possible that the robes are unfinished. The brushwork is very loose, even for Stuart, particularly along the left shoulder and arm here. Stuart painted the face before Jay left, and then Jay's nephew sat wearing the robes for Stuart so that he could continue to work on it while Jay was still in London. And there's another story that Jay's son later wanted to hire another artist to come in and touch up the sleeve and make it look more finished. Fortunately, he never did that. While Jay was still in London, he was elected governor of New York. He served two terms, and as governor, he signed the act to abolish slavery in New York. While still governor, he was appointed to the Supreme Court, and he was the Supreme Court's first chief justice. Jay was also the one who introduced Gilbert Stewart to George Washington. As King George sings in the musical, are they gonna keep on replacing whoever's in charge? And quote, next to Washington, they all look small. In fact, these portraits are all the same size, they all have their original frames, and they were part of a set known as the Gibbs Coolidge set, named after its first two owners. George Gibbs was from Newport, Rhode Island, and in a nice connection to Hamilton, he married the daughter of Oliver Wolcott, who succeeded Hamilton as the Secretary of the Treasury and who owned the portrait of Hamilton on view in the West Building. These five are also on view in Gallery 60A. The portrait of Monroe, on the lower right was the first of the set to be painted in 1817. And it wasn't until four years later that Stuart got the idea to add portraits of the first four presidents. And then he decided he would make two of these sets. Three portraits from the first set were destroyed in a fire at the Library of Congress in 1851 when the Library of Congress was still part of the Capitol. And so this is now the only set uh, complete that survives. For both sets, Stuart copied earlier portraits that he had made of all five sitters. Madison is the only one to face right, and he and Monroe have more colorful backgrounds. Stuart painted all of the backgrounds last, and if you go into the galleries, you can very easily find places in every one of these portraits where the background overlaps the figure. The version of Washington uh, in the set was based on the second life study that Stuart made of Washington in Philadelphia in 1796, that one known as the Athenaeum portrait, which Stuart retained in order to make replicas. Welcome to the Adams administration. Or as King George says, President John Adams, good luck. Adams served two terms as vice president under Washington, and he was elected president after Washington stepped down. Adams's victory was no thanks to Hamilton, who tried to influence the electoral votes against Adams. Hamilton and Adams were both Federalists, but they really hated each other. Adams once referred to Hamilton as an instrument of hell. Stuart painted Adams from life in Philadelphia during Adams's presidency, and the portrait, that portrait is the one in the middle, and it is on view in Gallery 42 on the first floor of the West Building, along with the companion portrait that he painted of Abigail Adams that you see on the left. 
Stewart replicated the earlier portrait of Adams for the Gibbs Coolidge set, and he changed the color of Adams's coat from black to red. Adams may have sat for Stewart again in 1821 to allow him to touch up the new version. He was the only president to repose for the project, which would help explain why his portrait is so different from the original version, particularly around the mouth. It is also the only portrait in this set to include a dusting of hair powder on Adams's shoulder. You can see hair powder quite clearly on the shoulders of other male portraits by Stewart in the West Building, but for this set at least, Stewart did not reproduce the hair powder when painting the replicas. Here's Thomas Jefferson. He has a very grand entrance in the musical. I'm, I'm not gonna attempt anything here. The earliest known portrait of Thomas Jefferson is on the left, painted by Mather Brown in 1786. Adams encouraged Jefferson to uh, commission Brown to paint his portrait, and it is on view at the National Portrait Gallery. The second portrait is a miniature painted by Trumbull in 1788, and its first owner was Eliza Hamilton's sister, Angelica. The third portrait is one that Stewart started in 1805 when Jefferson sat for him in Washington, but he didn't finish it, he kept it, and then he later used it as the model for the Gibbs Coolidge set. And then he finally delivered it to Jefferson uh, in 1821, 16 years after he started it. Stewart was notorious for not finishing commissions, and this was part of his financial problem. Despite their diametrically opposed political views, and in the musical, Hamilton takes Jefferson to task for slavery in particular. Hamilton endorsed Jefferson for president in 1800 over Aaron Burr, thus deciding the election which had resulted in a tie. Although Hamilton doesn't agree with Jefferson on anything, Hamilton never knew what Burr stood for. And in the musical, Burr's advice to Hamilton is talk less, smile more, don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. Hamilton sides with Jefferson because, as Miranda's Hamilton says, Jefferson has beliefs, Burr has none. Stewart first portrayed James Madison when he was Jefferson's Secretary of State. The Gibbs Coolidge likeness was most likely based on a portrait of Madison that Stewart painted in 1805 for James Bowden, who was the governor of Massachusetts and the founder of Bowdoin College. And you might think, well, isn't Bowdoin in Maine? But Maine was part of Massachusetts back in those days. Gibbs paid for Stewart to travel to Maine in 1821 to replicate Bowdoin's portrait of Monroe for the set. And the portrait of Monroe is more precisely painted than the first three presidents. And the green curtain, oddly tacked to the wall here on, on the right, adds a bit of color to the portrait. Hamilton and Madison collaborated on the Federalist Papers, but as Madison and Jefferson team up to oppose Hamilton's influence, their relationship goes south, as does Hamilton's relationship with all of the Virginians, apart from Washington. Stewart painted Monroe on the right in Boston in 1817, soon after he was inaugurated as the fifth president of the United States. Monroe doesn't make it into the musical, but in Chernow's biography, he comes off as second only to Burr as the worst of Hamilton's enemies. Monroe was likely the one responsible for leaking the evidence of Hamilton's affair with Mariah Reynolds, and ironically, it was Aaron Burr who helped prevent a duel between Monroe and Hamilton. As Chernow points out, if Burr had despised Hamilton all along, he could have easily let Monroe take care of shooting him. But then again, as I think Chernow also points out, Monroe most likely would never have engaged in a real duel. The brushwork in the hair of Monroe is extraordinary, and the blue skies and blue sky and clouds in the background make it the only painting in the set to suggest an outdoor setting. Here he is, the villain of our history. These are the three portraits uh, that Chernow reproduces. The portrait on the left is attributed to Gilbert Stuart. It's dated to about 1792, soon after Burr defeated Philip Schuyler for his Senate seat. The portrait in the middle is by John Vanderlyn, painted in 1802 when Burr was Jefferson's vice president and two years before he shot Hamilton. And on the right by James Van Dyke, uh, Burr as an old man in 1834, two years before he died. 
These are both prints from the Library of Congress collection, uh, and both were created soon after Hamilton's death, and they served to memorialize him. On the left is an 1807 engraving by John Scholes after an original painting by Elkanah Temple. In the image, an allegorical figure of history is directing George Washington, Nathaniel Green, one of the generals who wanted to hire Hamilton, and Hamilton up the steep and winding road toward the Temple of Fame. The print on the right includes a fairly spectacular imaginary monument to Hamilton at Weehawken with allegorical figures of America and liberty and various symbols of Hamilton's public service piled on the ground between them. There is a version of this print in silk and embroidered by a New Jersey schoolgirl in 1811, and that is on view in the exhibition at the Society of the Cincinnati, and it's another great reason to go see that exhibition. Now we come to the other portrait of Hamilton in the gallery's collection. It is an enormous painting and it's hanging in the stairwell at the far end of the West Building. This is Rembrandt Peale's Washington Before Yorktown, begun in 1824 and reworked in 1825. In the fourth and final part of the talk, we will look at the paintings and monuments that helped secure Hamilton's legacy in the decades following his death and into the early 20th century. In this heroic equestrian depiction of Washington before Yorktown, Washington is in command on his white horse. Lafayette rides just behind Washington on the left side of the composition, and Hamilton is galloping off on the right to finally lead his own battalion. Chernow argues that, quote, no immigrant in American history has ever made a larger contribution than Alexander Hamilton, end quote. And his role as Washington's right-hand man during the revolution was only the beginning. In the musical, Lafayette and Hamilton greet each other on the field at Yorktown and deliver what is possibly the best line of the whole show. Immigrants, we get the job done. The other officers uh, seen behind Lafayette are Henry Knox, and he's a little bit cut off here by the edge of the image, Benjamin Lincoln, and Rochambeau. Everyone except Washington is set against a backdrop of foliage. Washington's head is set against the lightest part of the sky, directing our attention to his face. The front of his white horse is also starkly lit, as is the large plant in the foreground. The plant is a mullen plant, and the standard interpretation of its significance is that it stands tall, defiant, as a symbol of Washington's strength and character, as well as the strength of the new nation. Alternatively, and this is the view of a botanist at the New York Botanical Gardens, the mullen plant as an invasive species from Europe, which Peel has depicted as past its flowering stage, about to wither and die, could also symbolize England's colonial control, which is about to be trampled by Washington's horse. Rembrandt Peale was the most successful of Charles Wilson Peale's many artistic children, and in a fun coincidence, he was born on February 22nd, Washington's birthday. At the upper left is a miniature portrait of Rembrandt Peale painted by his uncle James Peale in 1794, and below a self-portrait from 1828. And those dates almost perfectly span the period of Rembrandt Peale's creation of Washington before Yorktown. Rembrandt's father painted the very first oil portrait of Washington in 1772, and then many subsequent portraits of Washington. He arranged for the sitting with Washington for his son in 1795 when Rembrandt was 17, just one year after that miniature at the upper left. Like his father and like Gilbert Stuart, Rembrandt Peale also painted many replicas, 79 of the bust-length portrait of Washington that he made the year before he painted Washington before Yorktown, but nearly 30 years after he made his study of Washington from life. One of those 79 bust-length portraits is the painting in the middle of the screen, and it's in the gallery's collection, but it's not currently on view. In the intervening 30 years between the life sitting and the final painting, Rembrandt's conception of George Washington was informed by Gilbert Stewart's portrait of Washington, which Rembrandt didn't think was accurate, along with other well-known portraits of Washington, including those painted by his father. 
In the end, Rembrandt produced one of the great examples of a much older portrait head of Washington appearing on a younger man's body. Washington was 63 when he sat for Rembrandt in 1795, and he was still in his 40s at Yorktown. Peel hoped that his equestrian portrait would be purchased by the US government to hang in the Capitol Rotunda. He was permitted to hang it there, but Congress never acted on its purchase. It remained in Peel's possession and passed through his descendants, who gave it to Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon, before they built their new visitor center, didn't really have a proper place to hang it, and it had conservation issues. So in the 1940s, they gave it to the Corcoran Gallery of Art. And as many of you know, most of the Corcoran's collection was acquired by the National Gallery in 2014. But thanks to John Trumbull, Hamilton did end up in the rotunda of the Capitol when the surrender of Cornwallis was installed along with three other canvases by Trumbull in 1826. And Hamilton is here, the fourth figure from the border at the lower right. Next to him is John Lawrence. Uh, and on horseback on Hamilton's right is Henry Knox, the other general who wanted to hire him. Uh, Lafayette is second from the left under the flag. This is Washington, and here's Rochambeau. So we just saw Hamilton with Washington before Yorktown. Here they are after Yorktown, and there's a painting commissioned by Rochambeau of the battle itself that is currently on view as part of a new Revolutionary War exhibition at the National Museum of American History. You can't make out Hamilton in that painting, but you can see a depiction of the storming of the redoubt that he led. Hamilton is also in the Capitol Rotunda in marble form. This is by the American sculptor Horatio Stone, who as president of the Washington Art Association asked Congress to form a commission to oversee the acquisition of art for the Capitol building. The commission was very short-lived, but it led to Stone being awarded the job of creating this sculpture of Hamilton, which he completed in 1868. And I want to look quickly at some of the other sculpture memorials of Hamilton. These three are all in New York City. Hamilton's son, John Church Hamilton, commissioned the Granite Monument in Central Park on the left in 1880. Uh, and Conrad's used Sirachi's bust as the model for the face. In the center is William Partridge's 1908 bronze sculpture in front of Hamilton Hall at Columbia University, previously known as King's College, where Hamilton went to school. And on the right is Adolf Weinman's recently restored bronze in one of the niches on the facade of the Museum of the City of New York. The most famous outdoor sculpture of Hamilton in DC is this one in front of the Treasury Building by James Earl Fraser, and it was authorized by Congress in 1909 and dedicated in 1923. In 1921, Fraser said this about his conception of Hamilton for the sculpture, quote, I like to think that Hamilton has just come out on the steps of the old treasury and is on his way to a cabinet meeting. He has one of his usual struggles ahead of him in which he has to fight down opposition to measures and ideas from which we are deriving benefit today. He knows a fight is ahead of him, knows its strain, but knows also that he will win by the sheer power of his superiority of mind. End quote. And it gets better. The inscription on the north face of the base, which unfortunately is not visible in this photograph, reads, quote, he smote the rock of the national resources and abundant streams of revenue gushed forth. <laughs> he touched the dead corpse of the public credit and it sprang upon its feet, end quote. That's great stuff. Other Hamilton monuments in other cities include William Rimmer's 1865 Stone Monument on the Commonwealth Avenue Mall in Boston. On the left, Franklin Simmons' bronze sculpture in Patterson, New Jersey at Great Falls Historic Park from 1905 to 06, and John Angel's Gilt Monument in Lincoln Park in Chicago from 1839. It wasn't installed until 1952, and it was just recently regilded in 2016, which is why it is so very gold. <laughs> Here are a few commemorative medals that include portraits of Hamilton, a treasury medal from 1804 on the upper left, one modeled in 1808 and cast in 1860 below it, and on the right, an 1892 souvenir medal issued for the centennial of Patterson, New Jersey, a city that was founded by Alexander Hamilton. 
Prince helped keep Hamilton's portrait and also Eliza's circulating in the 19th century and into the 20th. The color mezzotint on the upper right is from 1936. Uh, the color is wonderful, but look at Hamilton's right arm. It is really disturbingly elongated. Also in the 19th century, particularly around the time of the centennial, artists came up with new conceptions of significant moments from the country's early history. These are two Courier and Ives prints, the surrender of Cornwallis on the left from 1845, and the inauguration of Washington from 1876 on the right. These are late 19th century prints. On the left is Augustus Tholey's Leaders of the Continental Congress, and that is John Adams, Governor Morris, Hamilton, and Jefferson from around 1894, and it's in the Library of Congress. On the right is Henry Johnson's The First Cabinet, Henry Knox, Jerson, Randolph, with his back turned to us, Hamilton, and Washington from 1879. This is an engraving in the Museum of the City of New York. Here are two works by 19th century illustrators. On the left is Howard Pyle's Hamilton Addressing a Mob. This is a watercolor that was reproduced as an engraving in Harper's Magazine in 1884. It's in the New York Historical Society. And in the image, Hamilton and a friend are attempting to dissuade a mob from storming King's College to seize the Loyalist president. Uh, and this happened in May of 1775. And on the right, Alonzo Chappelle's depiction of Hamilton as a soldier from around 1857 during the early years of the Revolution. These next two images are surprisingly similar conceptions of the first time Hamilton and Washington met. On the left, again, Alonzo Chappelle. This is an illustration that he made for John Frederick Schroeder's The Life and Times of George Washington that was published in 1857. And on the right, Henry Ogden's Washington's First Meeting with Washington in 1776. It's from about 1917, and it's in the New York Historical Society. Here are three 19th century illustrations of the fatal duel, including the moment just before they shoot on the upper left, then Hamilton aiming directly into the trees above him on the upper right, and Chernow cites the evidence of the shot up tree as proof that this is how it really happened, apart from the carriage driving by. They were in a very secluded place where nobody could see what they were doing. And finally, below, Hamilton collapsed on the ground after he is shot with Dr. Hossack attending to him. A monument to Hamilton was erected in 1806 at Weehawken, and it's seen here in an engraving from around 1830. Another monument, including a stone bust of Hamilton, was erected later in the 19th century at Weehawken, but it was also vandalized by souvenir hunters. The current 1935 bronze bust on the right is by John Rapetti, who was an Italian sculptor who came to New York from Italy in 1899 and settled in Weehawken. And on the lower left are the dueling pistols that Hamilton and Burr used. These were originally on loan to the Postal Museum only through June, but Morgan Chase has extended the loan through the end of the exhibition on September 16th. Go see them, they're pretty fun. And nobody knows which one was used by Burr and which one was used by Hamilton. I wanted to end on a lighter note with an image from our own time and also to come back to what Lin-Manuel Miranda has done for Hamilton's legacy. The Cozy Classics board book series published by Chronicle Books distills literary classics down to 12 words and then illustrates them with scenes created in felt by Jack and Holman Wang. To give you an idea, other titles in the series include Moby Dick, War and Peace, Pride and Prejudice, and Great Expectations. Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton is now part of that series because clearly this felt portrait with the dark hair and goatee is a portrait of Miranda as Hamilton. The musical has inspired other artists to tell Hamilton's story in many forms and for audiences of all ages. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.